Hi, my name is G.V. Freeman, and welcome to Psychedelic IQ, a podcast devoted to offering grounded and practical wisdom for psychedelic practitioners. At Psychedelic IQ, we try and weave our way between the secular and the sacred, and we've set our primary intentions on improving positive outcomes, increasing safety, and building healthy community within the psychedelic landscape. If you enjoy the show, please remember to give us a positive review, and always remember, the path is wiser than the traveler. Today's episode is is really cool. I was scrolling on LinkedIn one day and I came across an article called Psychedelic Bypassing, when avoidance is mistaken for healing. And you can check that out in the show notes. And I read this article and was so impressed and so intrigued by a lot of the points that the author presented that I literally just found him on Instagram found him on LinkedIn, reached out and said, Hey, we're recording this podcast. Is there any way that you would be a guest? And he graciously said yes. And I think that some of the topics that we cover today, I think are so important for us as practitioners in this work, looking at shadow work, looking at spiritual bypassing and psychedelic bypassing, not only what it is, but ways that we can see our way out of it. We also touched on a new book that Sean has written and is will be coming out soon called The Psychedelic Revival Toward a New Paradigm of Healing. We also touched just briefly on Sean comes from not only a spiritual perspective, but he also serves ketamine. And at the very end, I think there's some really great advice for ketamine practitioners who are coming from a very clinical perspective that I think is, is really great information. So Sean Lawler is the author of Psychedelic Revival Toward a New Paradigm of Healing, coming soon from Sounds True Publishing. He is a regular contributor to leading sites on on the topic of psychedelics. Sean has a Master of Arts in Clinical Mental Health Counseling from Naropa University, and he has been trained in ketamine-assisted therapy, MDMA-assisted therapy, and internal family systems. He currently facilitates ketamine therapy at a clinic in Fort Collins, Colorado. I'm really excited to introduce you to Sean Lawler. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us at Psychedelic IQ. Thanks, GV. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm really happy. Before we get started, I just want to give people a little bit of context. I think one of your colleagues at Psychedelic Today posted an article, I don't know, probably about a month ago. It wasn't long after you had released the the article, Psychedelic Bypassing, When Avoidance is Mistaken for Healing. And... I read it and was incredibly blown away by so many of the components and how you had weaved in a lot of some of my favorite teachers, Robert Masters, and all of the psychology that you brought into the table. Um, So I posted that to my community, and it got a lot of interest. Uh, And I knew that we were getting ready to launch Psychedelic IQ. And I said, hey, uh, would you take a chance on us? And you said, sure. Um, so I'd reached out on LinkedIn, and uh, I, I'm really grateful that you're here, and I can't wait to to dive into this. Before we get started, maybe just tell us a little bit about your origin story and uh, what you're working on now. Sure. Well, firstly, thanks for those kind words. Thanks for reading the article. I know it's not short exactly, and then sharing it as well. I appreciate that a lot. Um, my origin story... Um, It's always a question of where to start in that. Uh, I come from St. Louis. That's where I was born and raised, went to high school, uh, studied philosophy as an undergrad. So kind of 
opened up a lot of possibilities for where my life would go. And um, I had a career going as a teacher. I taught writing at a high school and just found that I felt like I wasn't um, kind of going the directions I had hoped in my life, which was essentially to write, to be a writer. And um, so I moved out to Colorado, which I always wanted to do, and just kind of started figuring out how to be a freelance writer and getting pieces picked up here and there. And that kind of tuned me into this whole psychedelic renaissance because there's a publication out here called Rooster Magazine that publishes stuff about psychedelics and other drugs. And I had been personally interested from uh, some personal experiences with mushrooms while I was studying abroad as an undergraduate. And so I just started learning about psychedelic assisted therapy. There's a lot going on in Colorado. So I started interviewing some practitioners. And after doing it for a while, I just realized it was like one of the most amazing things I'd ever heard about or found out about and that I loved writing about it and wanted to continue doing that. And then I also wanted to do it. And it turned out I had to go to grad school for that to become a therapist. So after a discernment process, I decided to go to Naropa University in Boulder, a three-year master's program in mindfulness-based transpersonal counseling. And um, I completed that in 2022 and was fortunate enough to get to do my internship or part of my internship in ketamine-assisted therapy. So um, really, my intention has been to do psychedelic therapy throughout that whole program. And I'm super grateful for the program and all I learned. And now, afterwards, I am offering ketamine-assisted psychotherapy and also completing a book on all this stuff. So it's been pretty big in my world for the last four or five years. Well, I am interested in so mindfulness-based transpersonal counseling on top of ketamine-assisted therapy. And if I'm not mistaken, also some experience with MDMA-assisted therapy as well, right? Yeah, I did the, um, I think it's parts A and B of the MAPS training. So um, yeah, th I think the next, to take the training further, I have to get supervised while providing MDMA-assisted therapy, which is very difficult to do now because not many people are doing it. So yeah, I completed the first parts of the MAPS training. Any chance you'd be willing to share just a little bit without going into like trip reports, um, how these molecules have helped you in like your experience in the last five years? Yeah, the last five years specifically. Oh, however long you want to go back, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think at the beginning it was... It was a big influence on kind of opening my mind to like how many possibilities there were in life, like for, you know, my own path and uh, just just in general, that kind of the default life paths that often get transmitted down as like what you should do or are supposed to do don't dictate what is possible. And um Along with that, I feel like they really enhanced and opened up my creativity so that I was less bound by my superego or something and um, just more playful in creative expression, specifically through writing and playing music. Um, 
And I would say more in the last five years, it's been a lot around the shadow, like the kind of joys of the early experiences still can happen time to time, but often there's more challenge in the experiences, like maybe parts of myself that I'm not paying enough attention to or, or habits or patterns that have gotten out of balance and they'll, you know, come to conscious light and really ask me to, to look at them, which can be kind of painful sometimes or, you know, difficult memories that I'd rather not thinking about, think about. Um, so yeah, it's been important for my personal growth in that sense. Um, but I guess a little less defined by, you know, bliss and possibility. I, I understand. And thanks for sharing that. Now I have about 15 different directions that I sort of want to go, but I'm going to ask you actually, since you brought up shadow, I'm curious, does it make, what makes more sense? Do we talk about bypassing first or do we talk about shadow first? Maybe a little bit about shadow, just since, uh, just to have a conceptual framework to go off of. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me just... In general, I think that it's a word that gets thrown around a lot in especially spiritual circles. Uh, Tell me what your understanding of the shadow is. Yeah, I would say my understanding is primarily influenced by Carl Jung, um, who, as as far as I'm aware, was the first Western um, theorist to like really name and conceptualize the shadow as a fundamental archetype of the unconscious mind, the psyche. And um, from what I understand from Jung's conception of it, it's all of the elements of the individual, of the psyche that um, one disowns in a sense that the the ego or the persona kind of defines themselves against. So the shadow is the, I am not that. Like, I am not a bad person. Or, um, yeah, I am not dumb or something like that. But, well, maybe there's elements in the psyche where you are, like, a, quote, bad person, however you define that, that some of those pieces are in there too. And that doesn't mean that that defines you as a whole, but rather an inner kind of inner struggle and inner conflict results when we kind of push away these elements of our vast inner landscape and kind of fight really hard to like, make sure everyone sees that we are not that. And Jung talked about how like when we when we do that, when we, you know, disown parts of ourselves, they can have a way of actually taking the wheel a little more at an unconscious level and controlling us. And like it doesn't make them these parts of ourselves go away. Like they're still there influencing us from the background and finding ways to manifest in our lives. And so that's kind of the personal shadow, like these these personal things. And it can also be like memories that we have of traumatic experiences or um, 
you know, Jung talked a lot about the anima and the animus, like the feminine and masculine principles that are equally existent within each of us. And um, I think you can think of them in terms of yin and yang as well for less gender specific language. Um, But yeah, that one tends to be more shadowed than the other than us that can create these inner, inner conflicts. If, you know, that part of us wants expression in a certain way. Um, And yeah, I guess the other thing I'll say about this is that culture has a very large influence on the shadow because, you know, our specific culture tends to have pretty strict rules on what's okay and what's not okay. And it differs between various places. And so what could get punished in its expression is probably going to get shadowed in each of us because we don't want to experience that. And we kind of internalize those cultural norms and, um, you know, implicit or explicit rules. So the personal shadow can't really be seen as independent from a broader cultural shadow that has a strong influence over where these divisions kind of get, get embedded in our psyches. I was, I actually just wrote the question down while you were talking, does bypassing and shadow morph with culture and not only like in our, in a single culture. So let's just call the United States. Let's say that there's culture embedded here and shadow can move and shift in this culture, but it even gets more complicated when we're looking at what might be shadow or not shadow in some cases in South America, where a lot of these practitioners, sacred practitioners might be training and they're bringing practices here that are, would be definitely considered maybe out of cultural norms uh, in the U S totally. So when, when somebody brings something from South America that they've been taught maybe in a very deep multi-millennia lineage down there. And they bring that practice to the U S what happens? Like what, um, if it is not looked upon favorably here, how does that practice like get embedded within us in more of a negative sense? Does that question make sense? Um, I would say like 90%. I think the last, last bit threw me a little bit. I think the the question that I'm looking to answer is what happens when something that we've been taught how to do in a favorable sense in one place and we bring that tradition to another place, um, what happens within us as a practitioner um, with these practices? And when we begin maybe hiding something because we don't think that it's culturally acceptable here. So like when we're still like doing it, but hiding it from like, like making sure people don't find out about it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's can become some seat, maybe some secret keeping. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a really good question. That is a hearty question. I would say, um, (laughs) I ask, I guess maybe I ask because it's, it's showing up. More and more, you. I think you mentioned it in the article. It was towards the very end, twenty nine or twenty twenty one, maybe a fairly large community sort of got outed 
with a whole bunch of stuff that was happening and had been happening for some time. And there seemed to be a big amount of shadow there that was not acceptable in the US. Maybe some of it would have been acceptable somewhere else. Um, and there was a lot that probably wouldn't be acceptable anywhere in fairness to that whole situation. I don't want to, I don't want to write any wrongs, but I guess I'm wondering how culture does play into what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Yeah. I mean, I think like what you said highlights a lot of that, that practitioner trainings in certain countries of South America that, you know, draw on like an entirely different lineage of healing and of of meaning and mythology are not going to match up with the United States a lot of the time and i think i it's it's like an issue in in translation that if someone thinks like well that works for people down there so amazingly so it should work for people here the same way because you know we're all one and we're all the same but that kind of bypasses like the cultural conditioning of people in the U.S., the level of comfort with certain things like maybe um, like physical touch or um, any number of things that could be permissible in one culture and um, just ask for different, a different ethical approach in this different culture if healing is the name of the game. Um, I mean, I, it, it, when it comes to like underground communities, like it's a bit, it's maybe a bit different because like an underground community can be its own culture that has its own agreed upon cultural norms. And like, you know, a huge piece of all of this is consent. And like, if, an underground community has consensual agreements that are like totally agreed upon for whatever it may be. And um, yeah, like that, that's, that's just a much different thing than bringing that above ground into the regulatory bodies governing psychotherapy and psychedelic assisted therapy. So I think it's naive when people try to translate maybe a different cultural's culture's approach into just like the mainstream above ground um, practice in a more Western culture. But uh, yeah, I'm not sure if this is answering your question. It's, it's like your question is more like a springboard for a lot of really interesting <laughs> contemplation and reflection. Yeah, and I think that it's okay that we we allow people to have a couple of stubs that they can go and and think about some of this. I think that yeah. what you just said is is a really important thing. What I heard was what works in one culture is not going to necessarily work in another culture and I think that we have to be really careful how we're operating especially in more of an underground uh setting or in a community where we have to really be careful about what consent looks like. Um, and we have to operate in a way that aligns with the culture and the community 
that we're practicing in. We can't automatically assume that just because it's okay in one place, it's going to be okay in another place. Yeah. And just one more thing, like around what that point you were just making, like to not operate in this other culture based on what you may have been trained in and a separate culture. And at least in psychedelic therapy and that culture, a big piece is to not, not push an agenda or an interpretation or a system of meaning onto someone for whom it might not um, align. So, you know, if, if a practitioner goes to India and goes deep into yoga and learns a lot about Hindu gods and goddesses to then come back to the United States and like have all those pictures all over the walls and like tell someone under their care, you know, like you should relate to this God in this way and this goddess in this other way would be to kind of push a particular worldview and culture onto them that might not align with their like system of meaning making and their own personal spirituality. And so I think as practitioners, like really looking that at that in ourselves, and that's not to say we can't share what's meaningful to us, but to really listen to where clients are at and like what is meaningful to them. Yeah. I think that's, that's a super helpful sort of paradigm that we can maybe put a pin in and maybe come back to, because I, I want to ask you, what are some really good ways as practitioners we can know when we're bumping up against shadow work? I think there's a certain, a lot can be told through the body, um, through certain kinds of feelings and sensations. I think oftentimes from like my own experience and from working with clients, if someone says or does something that we have an immediate, really strong reaction to, that that is very often an indication that like something beneath the surface has gotten triggered and like our, you know, really strong impulse of how we want to respond or defend might not actually be expressive of what's really getting contacted in us. So that's one way. And, you know, to be really aware of that during sessions, I think is really important just so we can do our best to like a hold a good open space for clients and not like be reactive to them if they say something that triggers something in ourselves that we're not not aware of um another thing is journaling writing i think when we like a stream of consciousness kind of writing if you're doing that and you notice that something starts to come up that you actually don't want to write and you interrupt your own stream of consciousness to take it a different direction. Maybe that direction has some shadow stuff in it. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. I have not, uh, I have not heard that as a, as an option for shadow work. I love that. <laughs> I'm curious uh, because you have pretty significant experience and now like you're, um, you're going to be, your master's at, at Naropa, what happens? Like, what do we do as whether you're uh, um, in the counselor role with or without medicine and your stuff gets triggered by a client? 
like what would you recommend how how do you gracefully bring awareness to that and work with it like when you're in the middle of a session yeah another great question there gv i think really training ourselves to recognize those like specific types of feelings of like when we get triggered or hooked by something so that we can like spot them quickly because yeah, if I don't notice that it's happening, it's just going to kind of take over. But if I can spot it quickly, like, Whoa, like it feels like my gut just constricted. And all of a sudden I want to like defend this or that. Then it's, I think really important to kind of interrupt the process without, you know, just like shoving it away as if it's not happening, but like bringing myself back to my breath. Like, so to bring back to the breath and make sure that you're still breathing deeply. And, you know, because like sometimes when we can get triggered in that way, the breath shortens and quickens. So it's kind of a way to, bring some more regulation to the nervous system in that state. And I think there's just so many different ways that people can regulate themselves. And I think that's kind of what it comes down to is like developing a personal practice to interrupt your own reactivity from what someone said and bringing back some regulation to your system while recognizing what's happening I think the more awareness we have of our triggers, the easier it is because you'd be like, oh, that's difficult for me to hear right now because of, you know, this part of me that I've already done some work on and am aware of. And then, you know, you can kind of know what's happening and get a little bit outside of it. So it's not totally uh, taking over. And, you know, it's if you need to tell the client, like, I, I need a a few moments just to like come back to my center and, you know, make sure whatever your language might be. I think that's okay too. You know, like that could teach them something important as well. Like that it's okay to take pauses and breaks and tune into your system and make sure that like you're in a good place to be having this conversation. A couple ideas. I, I'm just finishing up a couple of years of, somatic psychotherapy training. And one of the things that we often talk about is uh, when this is happening, when I, when my nervous system is getting activated, being able to provided the the relationship is there with the client and there is some already some trust built for me to bring that into, into awareness in our relationship, my relationship with the client and say, wow, like what you just said really affected me in an interesting way. And to your point, can we pause and allow me to just like come back to my center uh, and see how that might allow the relationship to even further unfold? Because there's probably something in that in that interaction that is really amazing content for maybe for both of us, but ideally, if we can figure out what it is in the client that's coming up, that's that's pushing my buttons, uh, it can help both of us out. Yeah, I love that. I think that's great. Um, and especially with medicine work, people have heightened sensitivities. So if you do have a strong reaction as a practitioner, there's a decent chance that they'll pick up on that. And you know, even without medicine, people are just intuitive. And if you're telling them it's not happening or acting like it's not happening, that you know could 
cause them to kind of like question like what why do I feel like something's weird in the dynamic now like what did I do and um you know that's just not the ideal therapeutic space like you want it to be a clear channel between the two of you yeah well let's let's put a pin in shadow and jump over to the heart of what I was really interested in hearing about from you is is your your title psychedelic bypassing when avoidance is mistaken for healing and maybe just give us a little bit of idea first on spiritual bypassing and then on psychedelic bypassing just tell us a little bit about your thoughts sure um so spiritual bypassing was a term coined by uh john wellwood um mindfulness teacher therapist and uh, Robert Augustus Masters elaborated on it quite a lot in a book about it. And it's been really discussed quite a bit at this point. Um, so the main idea is using spiritual practices and techniques to avoid what's painful in ourselves or in life. So kind of using them to move away from things that might be calling out for attention. And there's, I mean, so many different perspectives which to, to look at this, but I think one that's really resonated for me is that in a lot of spiritual traditions, there can be like a, such a focus on the spiritual and such a defocus on the psychological and that these are kind of two different domains of our inner worlds that we have, you know, psycho psychological development through childhood and through these stages that so many brilliant psychologists have laid out in different ways and spiritual development kind of goes along a different trajectory that they're mutually informative. Like they, they overlap, but they aren't the same. And so when we use a spiritual practice like meditation or when we focus on transcendence or oneness as a way to, I guess, not to, to not let our psychological pains influence us, you know, like, like, Oh, I had a, a traumatic experience then, but when I, I can transcend it now so that it doesn't affect me. Like I'm beyond it, but it's still there in a way. And so still affecting at an unconscious level. So those are some thoughts on spiritual bypassing. And then the whole thing with psychedelic bypassing, it's, it's pretty much the same thing, but where you're using psychedelics as part of that spiritual practice or just using psychedelics as a way to, to transcend or to heal or to let go of something like all of which can happen but which can become a kind of trap at a certain point when the thing you're trying to transcend or heal is still influencing you like from the shadow in different ways but you kind of convince yourself that it's not because you know maybe you saw saw god or felt unified with the universe on a psychedelic or plant medicine I think that three words that I picked up in your article were transcendence, oneness, and ego death. And I think that if I could pick three words that are probably overused and maybe 
we're in some ways finding ourselves addicted to the ideas of transcendence, oneness, and ego death. Um, tell me how you think these three things relate to psychedelic bypassing. Yeah. I think transcendence is this idea of kind of like getting beyond ourselves. So like transcending the ego, for instance, like in these spiritual communities, the ego is like the broadest, one of the broadest terms ever, but it's very often seen negatively as like whatever makes you feel like you're um, the center of the universe or something. And psychedelics can absolutely get us outside of that kind of way of perceiving to transcend it. But when that's a goal, I think it, it becomes a goal to like be in a transcendent state all the time. And that's just not realistic or feasible. And so maybe someone feels a sense of transcendence of trans transcendence over and beyond themselves on a psychedelic and feels like, yeah, like I'm finally here. I'm not burdened by all my stuff. This is great. And then they think they convince themselves like I'm good now. Like I've, transcended i'm not burdened by my stuff even like as it's creeping back in because day-to-day -day consciousness is like a lot different than being in a peak state um i think oneness is a is a very similar in that regard and i i think something different about oneness is that um it ignores the reality of difference and that we are different in many ways on various levels of our existences like we look different and we come from different backgrounds different cultures and our differences really inform our experiences of the world and oftentimes how we're treated in good ways or bad ways um, and to ignore that because one experiences this sense of oneness on psychedelics which is valid you know at at some level of our being some soul level I mean, there is this deep interconnectivity with one another and with all things um i guess it's just that's not to say that the reality of difference is therefore an illusion i've heard jack cornfield the meditation teacher talk about how they're both realities like on different levels or planes of existence and they both deserve and call for recognition. Uh, last one was ego death. And I, th I think it's just all these things, like when it's set up as a goal, that the goal of taking a psychedelic is to, for my ego to die so that it no longer influences me day to day. Well, a lot of people experience ego death on psychedelics as I guess understood as like the um, the dissolution of all you thought you know about yourself and the world, like everything you've defined yourself by is no longer a reference point. And whatever you are is something way different than this, you know, little walnut of identity that has defined your life thus far. 
Um, yeah, I think once again, when that's set as a goal, first of all, the ego gets villainized. Like it's a bad thing that we're better off with it dying. But the ego is important. It helps us navigate the world. It helps us hold things together. Like if we were in the, a state of having no ego all the time, it would probably be really difficult to navigate life because we'd just be, I don't know, unified with everything all the time. Uh, one of the things that I that I think that I heard there was that we are uh, we're operating on these two planes. Like, it, and I think that we also hear like, oh, everything, uh, this reality that we're living in right now is. Uh, it's not really reality anyway. Like we're all one and this doesn't really matter anyway because like it's just all one big thing. And we we have had that unifying experience. So we go out, we hang out on the astral plane, we have this unifying experience and we come down and then we now somehow negate this relative reality. And I think that what what I heard, I think you said like there's this this validated experience that we had in a, in the journey. And then we come back and we sort of invalidate the experience that we're having here. But all the time we do have spirit and we do have personality and to avoid one and, uh, and accept the other or vice versa gets us into trouble. And sometimes I guess what I'm just thinking is, are we, if we come back, from this experience and we fail to use any kind of nuance as we begin to explore and experience the two realities. When we just jump to it's all one, when we jump to, um, yeah, I've, I've had ego death and, and um, none of this matters. And if I forget that there's a whole bunch of relative reality in the middle and nuance there, then it's probably a pretty good chance that I am in some form of bypass. Is that accurate? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think so that some form of bypassing of this relative reality as a big part of our inner worlds and our inner experiences and our struggles. And yeah, that oneness can be kind of, um, you know, if someone, if someone is having like a real big struggle with whatever it might be, it doesn't really help them to say like, well, just try and remember we're all one. Like that could be a helpful meditation, I guess, to like help them get out of their heads. But like, you know, it's, it's kind of a way of like brushing aside the immediacy and reality and um, importance of whatever it is that they're going through at the time. Yeah. So that's, and I think that's where I get back to this idea of like recognizing that we do have spirituality and we do have psychology. We have a personality in that runs right alongside our spirit. And if we avoid one and, uh, and focus only on the other, then we're probably doing ourselves a disservice. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of stunting our, our development on a particular line of development or trajectory. And I guess to kind of tie back to some of the shadow stuff about how like what we avoid can influence us. I think Jung is at least said to have said what we resist persists. 
Um, like if I, for instance, had a, a really traumatic experience in my childhood and it would really influence my life for the next 20 years. And then I found psychedelics and used them as a way to go to a place where that's not influencing me. And then I'd come back from the experience and realize like, oh, this is still affecting me. I need to go back to that place of oneness. Like in a way that early experience is still controlling me in a way. Like I'm saying I'm getting past it, but my behavior is being driven by that and by not actually healing it, turning toward it, that the healing comes to from turning toward these things, not from going to a different place. Going to a different place can be wonderful. It can give us more resources to to heal that and to help us remember like we're more than maybe we've come to believe, but at the expense of the experience, the suffering, whatever it might be, um, can just become bypassing. And I, I will say too that like one thing I wish I did include in the article was uh, recognition that avoidance isn't necessarily bad, like to not villainize it too much that sometimes it's actually the right move that like if something is so painful and we're actually not really ready to open up fully, it's a good thing to bypass that. Otherwise we could get completely overwhelmed, maybe re-traumatized, especially when you bring psychedelic medicine into the work that, you know, it couldn't become a really rough ride. So having that inner discernment of like when, what we're able to turn toward, what we're able to meet um, and practicing the ability to like, titrate into the um the painful experience so that you can kind of go in and come back out to a more resource resource place rather than feeling like i have to go into the depths of my darkest shadow all at once or else i'm never going to be okay so that's just something i wanted to name as well i absolutely love that you you inserted that here because it was something I was going to ask, like, is there any benefit to bypassing? Because in some ways I have been experiencing, I've been doing my work for about 15 years now. And I had an experience uh, recently with my teachers from Peru. And I had, I've been doing work with psychedelics since 2015. And never once has my inner teenager ever come up and said, hey, <laughs> I need some attention I've been doing all of this work now for so long on what might be considered my inner child. And I think that I've resolved a fair bit of that work. And then all of a sudden, like up pops my inner teenager and says, Hey, you've sort of left me out of this and we've got some work to do now. <laughs> and it surprised me. And I talked to my teachers and he was like, yeah, it's, it's perfectly okay. Like you, you have healed enough of yourself. You have gained enough strength that you're now able to look at these memories, which you weren't able to do before. And I thought it was just a, a really gentle way of saying, okay, like it's time now, like it's time to look at this. And this is probably not the last time I'm going to have to be surprised at something else that popped up like, ah, oh, crap, I forgot about that one too. Yeah. Um, so thanks for bringing that up. That's very helpful. Totally. And yeah, thanks for sharing that. It's just such a good example to illustrate that concept that 
you know, everything, everything in its right time. And that rushing to a particular part or element of our lives, like might not be coming from like our, to use psychedelic therapies language, inner healer, like our, our inner wisdom that it might be agenda driven, but really it would be better if we don't turn toward this thing for a while until we're ready to. And maybe that's when it'll come up, just like what happened for you. How do we know any, any ways to spot bypassing? You talked about reactivity with the shadow. Is there any ways that we can spot bypassing um, and ways to maybe get out of it? Yeah. I mean, I think the same things on the reactivity and the uh, writing piece that, you know, if you're free writing or, or even in like a stream of consciousness kind of conversation with someone and just paying attention to where you divert and what details you're kind of excluding from either the writing or the talking, that's a pretty good indicator of something that maybe isn't quite as integrated into your psyche. Maybe there's some shame around it or just confusion or just not wanting another person to see you in a way you fear they might see you if you say that. Um, so those can be good indicators. I mean, I think one thing that psychedelics therapy is really missing is more community that it's a very individualistic model. Still there is group psychedelic therapy that hopefully continues to gain traction. Um, and so, you know, individual work with a therapist, the therapist can tell you like can kind of point to these things, but I think that's one of a great value of community is like helping one another become more aware of places in themselves because sometimes it's easier to notice in another person than it is in ourselves. Like where <laughs> like things they're avoiding, you might see certain behaviors and hear the way they talk about them and be like, that doesn't really match up. So being involved in communities, I think is a, a great way to uh, become more aware of these things in ourselves or just relationships in general. I think probably like an intimate relationship might be the best way because there's just at a certain point, like no way to avoid it. It just creeps up in different ways in your relationship. And especially if you're with a partner who is doing self-work and you can kind of talk about these things. And we, we talk a lot in the community here that we make a really specific awareness in the spiritual community that we're in, that we're going to make mistakes, that ruptures will occur. And that we're first, like the most possible best intent should be acknowledged. Um, but beyond that, we know we're going to make mistakes. We know the rupture is going to occur. It's not that the rupture occurred that is the problem. It's that when we can't come back in, maybe it's a week, maybe it's a month, maybe it's a year later when we can't come back in and have a conversation and try and do that repair, that if you can show up consistently inside of a community and know that 
rupture is okay as long as like it's not continually happening in the same way. But when you have the ability to come back into a, a loving community and try and do the repair, even maybe in a facilitated way, somebody else, a third party in the community that can come back in uh, and help both parties see what's happening. Um, I think the community has been really beneficial for us for all of that. Yeah, sounds like it. Sounds like you've got a great approach to that too. To just like give people the grace of being able to make mistakes because we're human, and the more I think we try to like not make mistakes, the more we're kind of like I don't know over over controlling our authenticity or trying to be some idea of ourselves. And yeah, we we make mistakes, and we can hold ourselves with love in that too. And we can hold each other in love with that and repair relationships where maybe people were hurt. So glad to hear that. That's your approach. Tell us a little bit uh, about the new book. So it's, uh, it's being published through sounds true. And um, well, the title is psychedelic revival, which is, Kind of just a different term for what's typically called psychedelic renaissance. Um, I got the term from Jim Fadiman, who's kind of got pretty well known for his work on microdosing and writing the book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. So if you haven't heard of Jim Fadiman, I would recommend looking him up. He's pretty great. And uh, I interviewed him for the book and he argued how that is actually a better term than Renaissance because there's a lot more being revived from the depths of human history in this. And yeah, probably won't go into too much of the philosophy behind it here, but I could get into it in the intro of the book, but the book itself goes through eight different psychedelics in the West talking about some of their history some of the research that's been done, uh, weaves in personal experiences, experiences of others. Uh, it goes into four different plant medicines, uh, which kind of distinguishing between. So more in their uh, traditional and historical use in particular cultures around the world. Uh, ayahuasca, peyote, iboga being some of them. Um, and... Then it goes a lot into the shadow. It goes into concepts like psychedelic bypassing and just a lot of other pieces of the psychedelic revival or renaissance, whatever term you like to use, that I, I, I see as patterns, things that happen and don't really get acknowledged too much because I think there can be like an over-glorification of psychedelics and a media-infused way of seeing them as kind of panaceas that will kind of heal everything. And I think without recognizing some of the, you know, darker sides of bad things that have happened in psychedelic therapy trials or bad things that have happened to people when they've taken psychedelics or plant medicines in various contexts. Um, 
I just think it's important to know these things so that people are aware of the territory they're going into and don't go in with like overly rosy expectations into a pretty unpredictable inner territory that can bring up a lot of dark stuff. And um, yeah, yeah, so that's, that's kind of a general overview. I interviewed about 50 to 60 people. And uh, so there's a lot of, a lot of different smart people with their quotes in there and I try to make it fun. So trying to write it overall from a jovial perspective. What did you learn? What was the most surprising one or two things that you learned in the writing of the book? I learned that writing a book is pretty hard. Thought it was going to be easier. <laughs> Apparently it was really hard to uh, organize content. It was kind of a mess for a while. So I learned that. Let's see. I mean, I learned a ton about uh, peyote's history. So yeah, that was one of the more fascinating sections to write was to just learn about the history of peyote suppression, particularly in the United States after, um, you know, the European colonists came over and just how very quickly from the start, it was seen as like devil work, like the, the various tribes use of peyote. And uh, I learned a lot about how different Native American tribes from you know, totally different regions of the country came together around peyote as being one of the main things, peyote and the ghost dance of Wovoka that he had in a vision and the way it, it helps them unite against this kind of oppression of their way of life, this, this like systematic a- attempt at eradicating their lineages and um, yeah, just how much they had to do to keep that alive and to keep it secret, I suppose, like for, sh- for sure, because if it wasn't secret, they were getting some pretty bad consequences. And that through that came a fairly standardized peyote ritual for the Native American church. Yeah, that, that whole that whole history was just fascinating and amazing to learn about. That's very cool. I did not know that. Uh, I didn't know that the Europeans uh, did that to the Native American culture. I will tell you that my teachers primarily serve Wachuma in Peru. Oh, and okay. the reason the reason why uh, Wachuma became San Pedro was when the Spanish invaded Peru. Uh, they were also concerned about uh, Wachuma's use. So uh, the Peruvians were concerned uh, that they were going to have their sacred medicine taken away. So they named it San Pedro, St. Peter, uh, in, in honor of Catholicism. And they, the Spanish thought that they were revering St. Peter. They named this cactus after one of their saints. And in doing so, protected their cactus. That's one of the reasons why the name got changed. Yeah, that's great. That's that was a good move on their part. That was a smart call. Well, let's uh, jump into our speed round here. Uh, so I'll ask uh, four questions, and um, whatever comes to your mind first. Uh, the first one is why do you, 
Why do you do the work that you do? Okay. Uh, I do the work that I do because I think psychedelics are remarkable and incredibly powerful. I hesitate to call them tools because it's so practical, but uh, medicines to heal, to heal in all of these different ways and to connect with one another and the universe and ourselves. And I think a lot of people really crying out for help in different ways right now. And I deeply believe in psychedelics ability, especially in particular contexts to provide that. Beautiful. What is the most important thing this work has taught you? The importance of looking at my own shit. <laughs> as, as an individual, <laughs> as, as an individual and as a practitioner, particularly as a practitioner, probably. <laughs> Hmm. Hallelujah to that. Thank you. Thank you for bringing voice to that. I think it's a, that is a beautiful takeaway. <laughs> uh, what's the best advice you give to someone new on their path? A practitioner that is either like maybe coming out of a training program, um, a practitioner that might be coming from South America and wanting to operate now, serve medicine in the United States. What's the best advice you'd give them? kind of based on maybe the advice I would have given myself when I was getting into this, don't get too caught up in um, feeling like you're behind or anything like that. Like you have to catch up or that there are, you know, a, a finite amount of opportunities here that you got to get. I mean, this work is just expanding in so many directions and yeah, to just to just take it patiently and to educate yourself where where you need it, and um, to make sure that what you're doing and the choices you're making feel deeply aligned with yourself. Yeah, beautiful. Is there anything that we should have asked you today but didn't? Nothing comes to mind. Is there anything that you think you should have asked me that you didn't? So much of everything that I had in my notes. So uh, I think that we could have probably talked for an hour alone on shadow. We could have talked for an hour yeah. alone on psychedelic bypassing. Ah, one question. One question that I will ask you. You come from a both a spiritual perspective, Naropa being a, a Buddhist institution, and you probably have a, your own spiritual practice, and you have been trained in uh, the ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, um, more from a clinical perspective. I'm curious, having set in, having a foot in both worlds, what would you, what advice would you offer to someone serving ketamine today from a clinical, only coming from a clinical perspective, um, what spiritual or maybe consciousness advice could you offer someone that's only has both feet in the clinical world? Hmm. I would say that um, it's important not to reduce ketamine's effects to uh, neuro neurological or neuroscientific or chemical kinds of explanations and that the subjective experience of ketamine is really important for people who are undergoing the experience and the subject, the subjective experience 
often, very often feels spiritual for people. And so it's important to take that seriously so that you can meet someone after that experience in a way that makes space for where they are and what they're doing. And that, you know, discussions of neurotransmitters or something are probably not particularly helpful at that exact moment. Um, and I would say definitely to do it themselves, to make sure that they have had their own ketamine experiences. I think that's really important with psychedelics in general, and maybe particularly ketamine, because it's quite different than other ones and impossible to really have any sense of unless you've done it. Fantastic. I love that answer. If people want to find you online, uh, where should they go? Uh, I could go to my website. It's just seanplawler.com. Um, and then Instagram is just at seanplawler. Uh, yeah, those are two good ways. Great. We will put uh, both of those in the show notes. Cool. The book, if I'm not mistaken, is The Psychedelic Revival uh, Toward a New Paradigm of Healing. I did see it on uh, pre-sale on Barnes & Noble. If there's any other places, uh, you can let me know. We'll also put those in the show notes. Cool. Uh, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, and uh, we'll have you back again. We'll go. Uh, I have a, some philosophical questions that I really want to ask, but we didn't have time to go into that today. Totally. Well, yeah. Thank you, GV, for reaching out and for bringing me on the show. And thanks to anyone who listened. Take care. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning into the Psychedelic IQ podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, it would really mean a lot if you could leave us a positive review. If you're a practitioner working with psychedelics, please subscribe to the podcast or join the free community at psychedeliciq.com. And if you're looking for deeper connections, knowledge sharing, and even peer support, please consider joining a mastermind at psychedelicmasterminds.com. Thanks. Have a great day. And remember, you're perfect and you're right on time.